This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the Eurit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Leaders in every organization I encounter are wrestling with topics of diversity and equity. They want to look like the communities they serve. They want to make sure that the people they have are given the chance to rise to the extent of their abilities and that they attract top talent for the future. They want to derive the well-documented benefits of creating a diverse and welcoming workplace. And they want to avoid the frustration and pushback that comes with the performative efforts that add activity without ever making any real progress. My guest today is going to help us untangle all of that. Her name is Risha Grant, and she's going to take us beyond the BS, and we're going to discuss what BS really stands for in just a moment. Risha has been featured in Harvard Business Review, the FT, and other top publications. She was named one of the top 10 most powerful women leaders in HR in 2021, and she outlines her no-nonsense approach in her new book, Be Better Than Your BS, How Radical Acceptance Empowers Authenticity and Creates a Workplace Culture of Inclusion. Risha, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, looking forward to this conversation so much. I really enjoyed the book. I recommend it to everyone. Now, one of the foundational principles you talk about is radical acceptance. What, what exactly is that? Why do some organizations find it so hard? Radical acceptance, and a lot of people are, of course, aware of the term from the wellness industry. In that industry, people are taught how to accept their pain. In the radical acceptance that I teach, I don't teach you to tolerate pain. I teach you how not to cause it. So radical acceptance is accepting other people's humanity without our judgments full stop. It is that simple. We stop judging people. We allow the humanity and people to shine through, meaning that people are going to make mistakes. People are going to say the wrong thing. People aren't going to get it as soon as you tell it to them. But we've got to allow grace in these situations because we're all constantly learning. You know, I think it's, that's such an interesting observation because I, I think we all want to be accepted, but we find it sometimes hard to accept those who are different than us. And, and that just, uh, to me, is a it's having a growth mindset around this and realizing that uh, we all are full human beings and we need to be accepted. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think it also plays on zero sum thinking, you know, especially in this space, because people start thinking, well, if we hire them, what happens to us? Right. You know, and it moves from there out to our communities. Well, if they move in our neighborhood, what happens to the neighborhood? And so we start to think in a in scarcity mentality instead of an abundance mentality and knowing that, you know, there's enough in the world. Um, just because we're making space for other people does not push out the people that were already there. And so we've got to change our thinking. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I found useful in my teaching is I teach in front of very diverse groups in the Masters of Public Health program at the, at the Harvard Chan School is acknowledging the limitations of my own lived experience, right? My whole life, I've been a tall, straight white guy. Uh, and that is what it is. It's valid, but it's only one subset of lived experiences. And other people have had different lived experiences, which are, which are just as valid. Um, and answering questions and trying to understand 
where people are coming from, I found it really helpful, again, just to acknowledge the limits of what I've got to work with, which then opened me to, under, to appreciate what other people are trying to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And it really became much easier to have conversations about difference. So how has your lived experience played into your approach to the work you're doing now? It has been everything, everything. You know, I um, I fall into all of the labels that people have out there, right? I am a Black woman. I'm a bisexual Black woman. I am a Black woman who started a career in her, in her 20s, like started a business in her 20s. I've been married to a preacher. Uh, all of the things that people can think about or say about a person, I fall into that. And for me, I had to learn how to make it a strength because everything in the world says that I shouldn't be able to accomplish anything. You know, that um, my uh, that my my life um, does not matter as much as some other some of the other people out there. And I just didn't choose to believe that, you know, there were experiences, of course, that um, that definitely led me to that to say, you know what? I should just settle. But for me, I took those things. And once I embraced truly who I was, even with the limitations, it really opened up more doors for me. You know, people were interested in hearing about it. Um, Yeah, I had to sell it for a long time, but my lived experiences have been the thing that have helped all of my clients. I've been at this 25 plus years it is the thing that has helped all of my clients be able to see different perspective, be able to appreciate the differences in their employees and allow them to bring that uniqueness to work so that they can produce better products and services, uh, be better problem solvers, all the things that we need for our companies to be successful. Yeah, I think it's so important what you said. And it is true. Each of us is living the most amazing, complex beautiful story, sometimes with a lot of adversity, sometimes not, <clears throat> but they're endlessly fascinating. When you understand that about yourself, yourself and accept that and then see that in others, it just becomes a much richer world around us because there's so much so much to learn, so much to draw upon, and so much more we can do when we, when we work together. Yes. Of creating artificial difference. Now, yes. Sorry. I, it's okay. I, I know in, in the title of your book, you've got Be Better Than Your BS, and BS... Yes, in some ways it stands for what we all think it does, but it stands for something else aware, which else as well, which is the biosphere. Um, you know, one of the things we, we teach at the MPLI is that biases aren't to be feared, they're just to be understood, right? We all have them. These are shortcuts our brains create to save time and energy. Now, there's some biases that serve you, like if you have a bias toward fairness, let's say, and there are other fi- biases that are not going to serve you. We have biases against people because how they look, how they behave, whatever. It doesn't serve you or the organization. And it's important to, to be realize biases are there. And there's some you want to prevent or counter, counteract. There's others that are going to serve you and you want to make sure you're using them well. But I love how you sort of frame this up and call it the biosphere with a great, uh, a great word that you ch- uh, chose for that. Tell us about your conception of it and how it plays into your thinking. Yeah, our our biosphere are those five socializing agents, if you will, that shape the way that we perceive the world. So it starts, you know, with our family, then it goes into our friends and our peers, and then that goes into the institutions like the schools that we went to, the colleges that we went to, the government that we live under, and then last is, is mass media, because all of those things affect so much about 
who we are in the world, how we think about the world and the other people in it. I mean, and that first sphere is family. They are the ones who teach us. If you think about a baby, a baby comes here with a blank slate. And I like to think about our minds as almost being like a, a movie screen or a television screen. And our parents and the, our older siblings and all the people in our lives, they're downloading that movie for us based on their life. So I like to think of unconscious bias as an unrecognizable part of our upbringing. It's unrecognizable because it's just there. You know, we just one day <laughs> it's there. We recognize it and we, we understand that, oh, I'm supposed to treat certain people like this or I'm supposed to fear these people. And don't get me wrong. I think that our families are doing the best job that they can. We are living through the past hurts, pains and experiences of the people who raised us. You know, they don't want to see us go through things. So a lot of times our parents and our grandparents, all those people, they teach us things as a way to protect us. But it introduces unconscious bias. It introduces us versus them. You know, and then as we grow and have our own experiences, we sometimes have those things reinforced. So don't look at the bias spirit as a lesson in blaming others, but really in knowing yourself. And sometimes we need to unlearn all the things that we've learned from the people that we love the most and the institutions that we trust the most. Um, case in point for me, my grandmother was one of the people in my life that meant everything to me. Um, you know, grandparents are, you know, parents are great, but grandparents are awesome, right? <laughs> you get the right, the right grandparents. And my, uh, my grandmother was, was a maid for a white family and I got to go to work with her at different times, but I'd always go when her, when her boss's grandkids were in town because we played together and we were pretty good friends. And one day her boss says, hey, what do you kids want to be when you grow up? Well, never thought about that in my life. But in that in that moment, I thought about my grandmother. I thought about how amazing she was. Everybody in town thought she was amazing. So when it was my turn, I yelled out that I wanted to be a maid. Well, the adults were clapping and cheering. Everybody thought this was great until my grandmother came out of the back. And she got on her knees and she looked at me and she said, do you think I'm doing this because I want to? And I remember thinking, yeah, because I mean, you know, <laughs> that's what that's what adults do. They do what they want to do. And she said, no, I'm doing this because I have to. You're going to college. Well, we get we get in the car. And she said, I wanted to be a nurse, but they wouldn't allow it. Now, mind you, this is someone who did not allow us to talk about other people. She didn't care if you were white, black, green. It didn't matter to her. Um, she was really um, somebody that tried to respect all people. But because she was this woman that was born in 1923, Oklahoma, my grandmother experienced incredible levels of discrimination and prejudice and, and racism and all these things. And so she felt like it was her job to teach me how to navigate in a world that wasn't built for me. And that went on throughout my life. And it was always they, you know, they're going to think you stole that or they may not teach you the way they teach the other kids and or you have to look this way, speak this way. And I'll be honest, a lot of those things have been very, very helpful to me throughout my life. But when I found out who they were and found out that she was talking about white people, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, how am I going to make it? They don't like me. I didn't know they didn't like me. Now, as I got older and thought about this story, I went back and looked at the demographics of the town that I'm from, over 90% white. Wow. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, if they don't like me, there's no way that I'm going to make it. And if they don't like me, well, guess what? I don't like them. 
But <laughs> right. here's a joke. I had never in my life had a negative interaction with a white person at that time. So when we put these, these different thoughts into our kids, we carry those things with us. And for me, I had to unlearn that. And even knowing that my grandmother was the type of person that would hate to have taught me something like that, she still found it necessary, you know? And um, for, I had to really go back and say, you know, how has my bias been showing up in my behavior? If I have this mistrust of white folks, um, even though I have so many uh, white friends, it's all kinds of, you know, diverse people in my life. Some of them I even consider family, but how was that showing up for me? And how might it be limiting my life, you know, going forward in the career that I'm trying to build? And that was something that I had to break down and realize that I can't carry this with me. You know, yes, I've had some bad experiences with all kinds of people, but being a Black woman myself, being raised around Black people and in a Black household, I probably have more issues with Black folks than I have with white folks, right? It is about dealing with the one person that offends you or does something hurtful to you, not every person that looks like that person. So we have to begin to break down our biosphere. We yeah. have to begin to, to say, you know what, that was, that was grandma's experience, or you know what, that was my experience, but that was with one person. And maybe that person was just a, a jerk. So let me be better than the BS that I'm carrying so that I can open up my world. And I just, I truly believe that if we would all do that, we'd be in a better place. Yeah, I think it's so important what you what you just said and that story you related. Um, because I think, you know, one of the things we know about our brains is that they're constantly building patterns because our brain's trying to keep us alive. Yes. And so it's recording every interaction you have, whether you're conscious of it or not. And our parents, our grandparents tried to get us sort of wiser, faster by speed downloading, again, their experiences uh, to help us navigate the world. And for the most part, they're trying to do the best they can do. Um, and they're doing, they're doing that with all with a pure heart, as it yes. were. And you say, and we're building those patterns in there. We don't even realize it. And they're building up. And so there are times those patterns, you want to keep them going because, they're again, they're serving you well. And times you got to break them down because you realize, as you said, your experience is not your grandmother's experience. Her world is not your world. Um, and you know, I, I remember one of the lessons, life lessons I've carried forward, I learned from a, a singer-songwriter of all people, a guy named Greg Greenway, who gave a talk. He said, you know, every one of us is given things in this life, but it's up to us which ones we carry forward and which ones we leave behind. And I've always carried that to sort of remember to be intentional about, okay, you know, which of those patterns do I want to keep and which one of those patterns I want to make sure I, I, I break or, or minimize. And so I think your story is, is so powerful in that regard. Yep. Yeah. Yes, because it was, you know, though it was very serious for her, you know, growing up in 1923 and the fear that even led it. And you can't discount those things, but you can put them in their place. Right. You know, and, and I think that I, th I think we don't do a good job of it. And even when we talk about diversity, especially in today's climate, people, you know, are saying, oh, it's so polarizing. Well, no. Diversity is not polarizing. People are polarizing. You know, what's happening is we're all looking out for ourselves. To me, there's not a person in this world that is not diverse. There is something about you that is diverse. We have got to let people know that as we're looking forward in the world and the things that are changing, like it's for all of us. It's not just for a few of us. 
it's not, as we talk about diversity, that's not just for people of color and LGBT people and everybody that falls into the other category. That is for all of us to figure out how we can create the best world, the best quality of life, better communities, um, better relationships within our personal and professional lives. I mean, it is not something that is pushing out people. And if it is, it's being done the wrong way. And so we talk about organizations and communities, people in leadership positions have an outsized influence. They also have an outsized responsibility, I think. And so what are the skills they need to, to foster in order to create a truly inclusive culture? I, mean, I think of this as of space making. How do you make the space for those differences to emerge and be able to appreciate it, be able to discuss our past, our aspirations, all those kinds of things? How do you find that leaders can be effective at, at making this space for these things to happen? I think it's really simple. It's by talking to your employees and understanding what their needs are. And once you talk to them, you actually have to listen to what they're saying. One thing that I've found to be constant in my, in my 20, and I've been 25 years in, in DEI, is that there is usually a very wide misunderstanding between what leadership thinks is happening and what employees are living, you know, in, in, within the company culture. And so if you actually listen to your employees and you listen to understand, not to respond, but to understand, and then you validate the experience of the, of the employee. Validation does not mean that you agree with it. Validation means that you trust a person, you trust that person enough to understand their own experience. And you validate that experience. And then you create action around it where that is needed. You know, because a lot of people tell me, well, yeah, we, we have all of these great things happening around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion or around connecting culture. But, you know, when I when I talk to leadership, I don't I don't see anything happening that I have uh, went and talked to them about. Well, a lot of times when I talk leadership, they have all of these great things happening, but they haven't communicated it. So what does that action plan look like? You know, and are you going to check back with me and tell me what's going on? Are you going to um, al allow me to come back and and be able to have a, another conversation with you? Like, what is the follow up plan? So I think you listen, you validate and then you act. There has to be something, some type of action. And it's not for each and every thing that comes to you, but maybe there's enough of a few things that you do need to actually create a plan that is going to help your culture, culture to thrive better. That's great to listen, validate, and then act. I think you're right. That act, action piece is so important and the, the listening can't be performative. You actually have to show that yeah. you're, you're hearing what's being said and not just showing up with your, and, uh, and pretending. Yes, you, also have a, you also have a great chapter in the book on detoxifying the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something I've cared about for a long, long time is how do we make places we work more, more enjoyable, more, more welcoming, more positive in our lives. You know, could you give us two or three examples of some of the ways you found that less, the less obvious ways, so beyond sort of the, hey, they hired a high-performing jerk, those kind of things. What are some of the less obvious ways that toxicity arises? And what do you think leaders can do to prevent or counteract them? I think that they are uh, they they revolve around a little bit of what I what I said earlier. Um, starting with listening, I love when a company uh, implements listening circles, 
right? And these are actually circles that people join to talk about what their experiences are, you know, because when we can understand more about someone's experience, um, it endears them, endears them to us, or we become more empathetic when we when we hear what people may be going through. Um, so one of the things is is listening to circles. Another way to de detoxify is your policies and procedures. And I know that um, people are tired of hearing about that, but as someone who is really in the trenches with this thing, one of the first ways that you can detoxify are your policies and procedures. Some of those policies have been in place since the company has been around, and that could be 50 years, 100 years. They don't apply anymore. They they are they're they're so old and so antiquated that um, they've gone out with the times. And so by going back through your policies and procedures and making sure that they are indicative of the culture you are today, that goes a very long way because people know now most people don't read the policy handbook, of course, until there's a problem. But at least you've covered all of those things um, with within your within your policies and procedures. The other thing is what I like to call a culture commitment. Now, it's not a purpose statement or a mission statement. It is actually a commitment to create a culture that is thriving for not just leadership, but for employees. One of the things that I really talk about in my book is that this is not just top down. This is also bottom up. I don't care who you are in a company. You should be able to feel empowered enough to continue to create the culture that that the company is is implementing even if that is uh just being a person that is helpful that is smiling that uh makes sure that they are doing their job to the best of their ability and they're able to do that without all the bs flying at them every day you know that culture commitment is a statement that says we're an imperfect company working with imperfect people but together we're going to create an amazing environment. And so you actually take the thoughts of the employees and you make sure that, of course, it's aligning with the goals that you have for the company, but you create a statement based upon what your employees need and want and what works for what leadership you know, sees happening long-term. And you put together something that is a living document that that changes as as things are changing, but something that employees help to build. Because when you have ownership in it, you can you can actually embrace it, right, and get and breathe air into it. So those are those are uh, a few of the ways that I think companies really can detoxify because it's difficult to walk into a place. And I know a lot of people, especially those that fall into a diverse category. They feel like they are walking in every day with a full suit of armor on, one that is deflecting so many things from from all the microaggressions, um, you know, just to, to discriminatory practices or just being treated unkindly on a daily basis. So people need to be able to take that off so that they can freely think, work and and be fully present. Absolutely. I, I think one, one of hard things is that I, I've experienced some cultures that are that are toxic and people can't really tell you why, but it yeah. just is, right? That's why I like the idea of going back and examining those those core principles or the, the policies and procedures and said, so what are the foundational assumptions here? 
uh, because I think at a, at a certain point, there are people who figure out how to navigate the toxicity, and then they don't want it to change because they figured out how to navigate it. So they don't want it. To, they're afraid that if they get bumped out of their comfort zone, it's go, it's going to be bad for them. Yeah. Um, and so we get this sort of weird cultural norms that evolve without anybody ever having said this is what the way we want it to be, but it just bothers a whole lot of people and it affects the way they can perform. Yes. Yes. And that is the key word perform. People are at work to, to do a job. And if they have to think about all these other things, just in order to, to be able to do their job, it's really difficult to, to be creative in that kind of space. Absolutely. And again, I think all of us likely, no matter what your background, whatever your experience, you've been in that place where you didn't quite fit in. And you say you had to put on that suit of armor, you had to kind of, you spent a lot of energy figuring out how do you just come out whole and not too deflated at the end of the day. And if we can create the environment where less of that happens, the energy goes into much more productive and positive things. You get more engaged employees, you get better products and services, you get all the good outcomes you're looking for, in part because you redirect the energy away from the non-productive and non, uh, non-healthy non behaviors in, into better ones. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. Totally agree. Now, I want to pick up on your, your mention of, of imperfection, because uh, one of the, another one of the things we teach at the NPLI and that a lot of leaders find refreshing is that you're going to make mistakes. As you said, yes. right? imperfect people in imperfect situations, um, we're going to make mistakes. And when it comes to some of these issues around DEI, there's a real great fear among a lot of people as I've talked to about making a mistake, right? It could be a career limiting misstep because they say the wrong thing or they, they act the wrong way, even when they have the best intentions. Now, you address this head on in your book. Give us some advice about how we make this make it possible for people to be imperfect, yet getting better all the time around these issues? Yeah, cancel culture is real. It is, it is a real thing, you know, we cannot discount it, but we are human beings and we can't remove the humanity because once we remove humanity, we're in trouble. And humanity sometimes means that we are going to mess up. Mess up. I remember I was speaking to a, um, a large government group and I, I use an audience engagement tool in my in my speeches that um, throw the you know I ask a question and the audience answers and it immediately uh, auto populates in real time. So I was asking people about their biases, and someone put on the screen Arabic, and no, I'm sorry, they put uh, Arab on the screen. And so I, of course I'm thinking, I'm talking off the cuff, I'm I'm riffing, whatever you want to call it. And so as I'm pulling things out. Um, I, I remember saying a rab because I was thinking and saying the word at the same time. Well, a rab is actually a derogatory and offensive word to Arab people. Mm -hmm. And in the moment, I knew I, I knew I mispronounced the word, but my brain didn't go to, oh, you've actually uh, you know, said something offensive. And so I just kept talking and, and kept moving through it. Well, I get an email from the from the company right after and there was an, an Arab guy uh, that that was offended by the way that I pronounced it and I when I tell you I was absolutely horrified I mean because as as a as someone who uh, focuses on DEI you want to make the unheard heard the unseen feel seen right you want to give a voice uh, that that's 
you want to make sure that that people are feeling like um, they're feeling like they're they're in a space where they can relax. And I had messed that up. So, you know, immediately I went, I, I said, can I please talk to the person? I'd love to get on the phone call because I want to apologize, you know, apologize personally. I want to let them know what was going on in, in my brain and and all of this stuff. And, you know, the company, um, they were gracious. They said, no, we understand that it was a slip of the tongue. We just wanted to let Risha know because we told the employee that we would. And so I did get the chance to talk to the employee and that bothers me to this day because I want to make sure that that person knows from me, I, you know, that I apologize and it was a slip of the tongue. It was not anything more, but I have to be okay with the fact that the company said, you know, we're fine. We just, um, we just wanted to point it out. Well, that company could have said, don't hire Marisha Grant. Don't do this. Don't do that. We are going to have to give each other grace. I have been in many situations, many, many situations where I have chosen whether or not I want to win or whether or not I want to be right. Being right means that a lot of times we don't take the time. We don't give the space to try to understand the situation at all. We just lose it on people. Like I had a guy say to me, you're a credit to your race. Well, that's one of the worst microaggressions out there. And I could have just cursed the guy out and went on about my business and I would have been right in, in doing so. But if we want to win, we have to show grace to people. We have to take the time to try to understand even in ignorance. And, you know, with this guy, I decided to have a conversation with him and try to understand what he thought by that, because I, I knew that he actually thought he was giving me a compliment. And this was a stranger, somebody I had, you know, talked to for mm -hmm. a couple of hours, but we had laughed and talked and I just didn't think that he was, was, you know, that kind of person. And so I took the time to explain to him why that statement was so hurtful and so harmful. And this guy and I, we've become friends. This is just a young white guy I met, uh, met in Chicago, sitting at the hotel bar, having a glass of wine. And we still text each other, you know, and his <laughs> messages always start with keep spreading the love. You know, and, and because it's you got to decide if you want to win or be right. And I think when we decide to win and we decide to offer grace to each other, that's how we get to know each other better. That's how we become better than our BS. That's how we move outside our biosphere. And that's how we create companies that people actually want to work for. Well, that's great. And grace is always a, a welcome ingredient, I think, to every conversation and every interaction. Let me move now to my final question for you, which is the final question I give all of my guests. And you're in an area we are working where there's been great progress, but also great blowback um, and continual obstacles to try and overcome. So what gives you hope? That is a great question. Um, I am, I have hope in people. I believe that there's more kindness in the world, uh, more beautiful people in the world than not. I have to believe that in my life of work, um, but, but I truly do believe it. And so my hope does not lie in programs and institutions and government, but it does lie in people and people that want to do the right thing, people that realize that um, we're in this together and we've got, got to figure this out together. Um, we've got to make space for each other 
I believe that there are enough of those people out there that will continue to um, to be better than we're than what we are right now. And I think we owe it to each other to do that. So my hope my hope lies in people. Well, that's great, Risha. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Thanks for having me, Eric. I really my, appreciate. My pleasure. My guest for this episode has been Risha Grant, author of the book. Be Better Than Your BS, How Radical Acceptance Empowers Authenticity and Creates a Workplace Culture of Inclusion. Read it before the next meeting about your DEI initiatives. And until next time, remember that you're it. You're ready to lead when it matters most. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.